Hello, hello, hello. My name is Courtney Turner, and you are listening to Bluegrass Community Foundation's Do Good Radio Hour. As always, we are so thrilled you are spending some time with us today. And if this is your first time listening, congratulations on finding one of the coolest local podcasts ever. (laughs) I'm only kind of kidding, but really, it's so great that you're here. And if you want to catch up on all things Do Good Radio Hour, you can listen to every episode right now on Apple Podcasts. Otherwise, we will be right here on Radio Lex every Monday at 2 p.m. You can also find Bluegrass Community Foundation on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at BGCFKY, or visit our website, bgcf.org, for updates on the show and more do-good opportunities. Now, today's guest is not only one of the coolest people I've ever met, she's also one of the most stylish people I've ever met. You know those people that you see at a conference or during a dinner party, and you're like, how are they the coolest ones here? Without breaking a sweat, they're not trying. You know they're not trying. That is our next guest. She is the director of the Central Kentucky Slavery Initiative and an associate professor of history and African-American and Africana studies at the University of Kentucky. She's an author. She's a friend. She's an ally. She is an amazing podcast guest. Here is Dr. Vanessa Holden. semester's rolling uh, so we're in it I'm glad we finally got to do this we were just saying we did so much back and forth between COVID and flu and all that mess so it's nice to have you here in person (laughs) yeah I agree I mean you know when the year starts it really gets hectic pretty quickly so I'm glad we found time to oh absolutely now I do also have to say this is pretty new for me I'm getting used to being on a podcast I feel like I'm getting better. Not perfect, but I feel like I'm getting better. But I have realized that every time there's someone new here, I have serious fangirl symptoms. (laughs) And today is no different because I seriously have dreams about that powder blue suit that you wore to 
the DAP press conference, it was immaculate. <laughs> it was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. I have to know where you got it. Well, thank you. Uh, you know, J. Crew Factory. Oh, gosh. We'll, we'll hook you up every time. Yeah. I remember looking at Lauren, our director of communications and marketing, and I was like, she has to be the coolest person. Oh, you were definitely the coolest person there. So oh, it was wow. okay. so yeah. neat. Very neat. So we have so much to cover. So before we dive in, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do? Sure. Um, so I'm Vanessa Holden. I'm an associate professor of history and African-American and Africana studies at the University of Kentucky. And I also direct the Central Kentucky Slavery Initiative, which is actually a whole cluster of projects, um, some research-based, some more outreach-based um, of which DAP, the uh, Digital Access Project, is a part. Um, and all of them are aimed at expanding our knowledge of slavery in the bluegrass region. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually, we'll expand out of the bluegrass and into the other diverse regions of the Commonwealth. But we're here in the center of the state, so may as well start here yes. and work outwards. Great. And now the Digital Access Project we are most definitely going to dive into that because it's the coolest thing ever. But are you from Lexington? How did you get here? How did this journey kind of start for you? Sure. Um, so I'm not from Kentucky. Uh, I actually am from California. Wow. Um, and I went to college in Southwest Virginia and became interested in working on Virginia history um, and wrote my dissertation in African American history on women and the Southampton Rebellion, mm-hmm. uh, commonly known as Nat Turner's Rebellion. And I actually was at Michigan State University as a professor for a little while, and then UK came along and stole me, um, and so I'm in the Middle South. Um, and a lot of Kentucky reminds me a lot of Virginia, which is not an accident. Okay. It was Virginia at mm-hmm. one point. Um, but being back in a place uh, that that was a slave state offers different research opportunities, different public outreach opportunities than living somewhere where slavery uh, was never legal. Right. Um, so I'm the kind of scholar that really likes uh, public-facing work. I like to interface with descendants of the people that I research and study. And so UK and Kentucky really offered me this opportunity to do a kind of work that... Um, reaches beyond an academic mm-hmm. audience. Yeah. Um, so it's great if, you know, 15 other people read an article I write or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's better, uh, I think, if someone who always thought their family history was unknowable suddenly has access to it because of a project I've done with other community members. Right. Um, so that's how I really arrived here. How um, long have you been here? I'm going into my fifth year. Okay. Here. Yeah. Does it start to feel a little bit more like home? Do you feel a little bit more grounded here? What is that experience like? Oh, uh, I don't think I'll ever pass for a Kentuckian. Um, I think, <laughs> uh, and that's fine. That's sure. fine. That's why I'm always really honest that I'm not from here. Because yeah. um, folks here, you know, Kentucky's the a commonwealth that's uh, – on both sides of the color line, experienced a lot of outmigration. There's mm-hmm. a whole Kentucky diaspora um, all over the Midwest, um, all over the country. And the folks who are here are the folks who stayed right. um, and have some well-earned pride uh, and pride of place. Um, and so uh, I don't think I can ever 
pretend to be a Kentuckian, um, but I can approach the work that I do with a level of respect. Um, and and that's a lot of what Kentuckians ask. Right. Um, I think every state, you know, every state has their unofficial <laughs> mottos right. and their unofficial their mascots yes. and like the ways the states around little state rivalries. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, but it, when it gets down to it, it's, you know, the th- one thing that I really care about is helping folks see that, that their history is history. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times in this work, I come across folks who just thought, well, I just didn't think what my granddad did was history, you know, was right. important. Um, and so affirming that is is a huge part and a privilege of what I get to do. Now, let's talk about that a little bit more. You have as helped establish, you did establish, I don't know who was the first one to raise their hand and say, I've got a really cool idea. But tell us about the formation of the Digital Access Project and not only what that is, but the impact that's going to have on this community and communities elsewhere. So it didn't begin with me. It actually began in um, years and years and years ago um, with African-American people who were interested in researching family history, um, folks who would go into the clerk's office to look through record books and try to painstakingly piece things together. Um, so there's a long tradition of sort of community history keepers and community history makers. I feel like everybody's got that aunt in their family who mm-hmm. pays a lot of attention to genealogy. Yes. Um, and that so, Ancestry.com. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, so I do want to make sure to gesture to a, to a longer history of folks searching out their past. Um, but in the most more recent past, um, a colleague of mine... Kathy Newfont, who is actually, she's an environmental historian. She specializes in Appalachia. Uh, She ran a course with UK students on the deed books, which is what we're we're digitizing, the bulk of what we're digitizing now at the clerk's office, uh, modeled after a project she'd done in Carolina um, on similar records, and began to build a relationship with the clerk's office uh, they actually got as far as, as having planning meetings to think about pulling off a project to digitize. There was enthusiasm from the clerk's office and Shay Brown, who's the deputy clerk who's heading we up the love project that, with Shay us. Brown. <laughs> um, so there was a lot of community buy-in. Everybody was really excited, and then the conversation around, well, who's going to pay for all of it, mm. started to happen, and then COVID happened, um, and so. COVID put a whole lot of things on hold, um, and including what was brewing with the project. Uh, Kathy Newfont had students even begin to kind of pilot out what a what a spreadsheet and database could look like, what the website could look like, um, and all of that just we pressed the pause button. Right. Um, and so, fast forward to a year ago. Uh, got pulled into a meeting with Lisa Adkins at the Bluegrass Community Foundation. Um, And it's not that the interest had ever gone away for the project. Mm -hmm. Um, We just needed the right funder. Uh, So the Knight Foundation had money available for community-based and community-facing digital humanities work. And we went through the process. Um, we got funding from the Knight Foundation. Um, there are a few offices at UK that have contributed money. The Bluegrass Community Foundation made some of their monies available. So then we had the funding to make this happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, a legal development came along. You can 
Kentucky passed a law that said that all clerk's offices have to digitize these documents. Mm. So it was sort of this, like, you know, perfect moment um, to pull together this partnership of folks because the clerk's office had this work that they were already going to have to do. We had the funding and the students and labor to begin working on the earlier documents. Um, And so we formed a partnership to begin thinking about, okay, how do we accomplish these goals? Um, so I'm the I'm the sort of uh, maybe leadership and facilitator who kind of came in in the middle of the process. Sure. Uh, so I direct a whole team of scholars. It's not just me uh, that represent folks from the history department, black studies, uh, UK libraries, the law school. And we are dealing with property documents yes. after yes. all. Um, I uh, am conferencing with Shay down at the clerk's office all the time. We're organizing volunteers. We're organizing student interns. Um, and we're really, in an exciting way, moving into the part where we get to engage the community even more right. in this process. So tell us a bit about these documents that you're digitizing. Because as somebody who doesn't know much about it, when I hear deeds and land property, I'm like, well, yeah, everybody, you know, you sell property and then that's going to be it. But then when you think about the bigger picture here, and especially that these documents were not always made available to people to truly know their history, what is the impact that these documents being digitized is going to have? So one thing that can easily be kind of smoothed over using the language of commerce are the the reality of the slave system um, that black people were property. They're Mm -hmm. human property. Uh, Now, I study slave resistance, so I can tell you without a doubt that no matter what law books said, enslaved people consistently made it well known that they were not, in fact, property. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, They were not going to behave like farm animals or like goods for sale. Um, But... Because they are property, any time property changes hands, you have to have legal documentation Mm. to follow that pathway of ownership. And so as a result, in the deed books, along with wills, along with deeds for land, along with um, inheritances finally being bestowed on benefactors of wills, We see enslaved people Mm -hmm. um, who are caught up in sometimes hiring, uh, sometimes being sold, whether it's to a slave trader or another citizen down the road. And what's really unique is is unlike other official documents like the census records where African-Americans are only enumerated with a dash or a number, um, often they're named in these documents. Mm -hmm. We get a name, we get an age, uh, we get a location. Um, And so it adds a a different dimension to what we can know. Right. Um, And it allows us to really learn more about how the business of slavery worked. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, we get glimpses of enslaved people. Uh, And so I always always talk to students about um, really making clear if what they're talking about is slavery, the system, the economic system, the social system, or if they're talking about enslaved people. Mm. Um, You're often talking about both, um, but they're not interchangeable topics. And so 
one of the things that's super exciting about the project is once we've digitized the documents, they'll be easier to transcribe. And once we've transcribed them, they'll be e- easier to search by topic, um, by name. Mm-hmm. Um, so often with these deeds, uh, the names that, that are most important to lawyers are grantor, grantee, mm-hmm. the almost always white men who are involved in this particular property exchange, not the name of the enslaved person. But right. once we've transcribed it, you will be able to recall using that name. Mm-hmm. Um, so it adds a new dimension. It adds additional searchability. Um, that really to replicate that now, you have to go to the clerk's office and you have to flip through the book. You have to read every single and it's document. A big yeah. book. It's, yes. I mean, they are hefty. Yeah, it is a table-sized book. Um, you have to cross your fingers and hope whoever was the clerk in that time had good handwriting. Um, you have to get right. used to. That's the other thing, everything is handwritten. Like. It's not like they had these digital computers that they could just upload to Google Docs. How are you all doing that? What what does that process look like? Um, so it is a multi-step process. Right now, we are engaged in digitization. And so that means taking high-quality scans of each individual page, um, taking down what we in digital humanities call metadata or data about the data. Mm-hmm. So an example of metadata for one deed book page would be page number, um, date, uh, maybe book, book number or book letter, for example. So we can keep track of what right. picture, what is a picture of what. Once we've completed the digitization piece, then we can begin transcription. Um, and that offers a whole other set of data management problems um, because, of course, as handwritten documents, uh, there are some standardized forms for official things. Um, but it's not a form in the way that, that we're used to. Somebody's hand copying um, the language from a template in a, mm-hmm. in a sort of legal book uh, to make sure that there's some uniform information per deed, but they extend onto multiple pages, they get cut off. If they happen to have been involved in a barn fire, then some of them are burnt. Um, so transcribing that and, and making a note of, well, what's in the margins? and how do you note, you know, a single document? And if it runs, that's a whole other set of problems. Um, and then we have to design the interface to make that searchable. Mm. Um, the clerk's office, of course, uh, as a state office, they're very particular legal obligations. Um, they must make available these high quality scans. Um, they must make them searchable by grantor and grantee, for example. Um, so that has to exist in one space, the very mm. official, you know, state, you know, state government office space. We get the opportunity on our side of things to take what's happening in that space, expand it, make it searchable in different ways, um, direct people to those high quality scans uh, to really sort of expand the ways folks are able to view them. Mm -hmm. Um, And you asked, you know, oh, well, how are you even doing what you're doing? (laughs) Um, And one of my jobs as a professional historian is to actually distill that process. Right. Right. To, To come up with Uh, a website interface that's going to basically teach people how to read these documents. Yes. Um, Get folks familiar with legal jargon they might not be familiar with. Um, Help people understand what different type of documents meant at that time. Mm -hmm. Um, Because 
Of course, there are some words that that sound similar, but they don't always mean exactly what they mean now. Mm -hmm. Um, So it really is, you know, a a whole matrix of people's expertise that are needed here. Um, and that's one thing that's really exciting. Uh, historians are sort of a solitary bunch. We spend a lot of time by ourselves with old paper. Sure. And this is an opportunity for us to really work with really a truly diverse group of people mm-hmm. with a really diverse range of expertise um, to hopefully bring to folks who maybe don't have any secondary education, maybe never really thought that something called a deed book would have anything to do with them. Right. Um, give them the opportunity to to dig through these things, um, learn something about their own past. Now, you all have student volunteers. Do you have volunteers from just the general public? Sure. So over the summer, um, we ran our first group of interns. Okay. Um, they were all paid. Um, and I, I really firmly believe in compensating folks, even yes. volunteers. Uh, it's, uh, to me, uh, particularly grimy to ask folks to labor for free on a project that's meant to make more visible enslaved people in our past. Um, and so over the summer, interns made $20 an hour, uh, in, they would work in teams of two. So they worked, they were guaranteed at least 12 hours a week and then would shift depending on who could make which shifts. Right. Um, they got through 50 of the 148 books um, over the summer, including indexes, uh, keeping careful track and making yes. sure that they got the best possible images. Uh, we just began running a new team, and I think we're at six now. And that's a combination of student interns, community volunteers, paid volunteers. Mm-hmm. We did have a couple of folks just decide to forego compensation. Um, and that, that's fine if they elect right. if they yes. elect that. That's yes. completely fine. Um, but yeah, we have community members. Um, we, have, we have students. Um, we have former faculty. Uh, we have one faculty member at Bluegrass Community College who's mm-hmm. getting compensated by fil- making this fulfill their community hours that gotcha. are required. Yeah. Um, so the point is from now moving forward to really diversify the range of mm-hmm. folks who are going to do the physical labor of scanning these pages. Um, because, of course, every group um, makes a different contribution. Right. Um, I should just say to all the listeners out there, we really need people who can read cursive. Yes. Um, and so this is a unique generational opportunity. Um, right, because that's lot of not my, really happening anymore. A lot of my undergraduates do not know how to read cursive. Um, so, Which is interesting. Yeah, so, so we're kind of seeing a, a moment to shine for folks who do have that skill. Yeah. Now, I'm going to ask, because I'm such a type A person, I am genuinely scared to get involved with this project because I'm like, I don't want to mess anything up. Like, what if I read it wrong? What if I mark something wrong? It just feels very, it feels too important to just hand to anybody. How do you, there has to be like a training process of some sort, or how do you get these people all on the same page saying, okay, this is our game plan and this is how you do it and we're going to do it right. So this was one of the reasons that we began with interns over the summer. Um, we had the team were mostly graduate students um, with some background, not necessarily in history, but some background in working with archival material. Mm-hmm. And we also had one recent graduate and one law school graduate, um, so not all currently students. Um, and one of the reasons that we went with them to just to start was that we wanted Shay to have a team of folks 
with enough expertise and familiarity that they could really do the hard work of troubleshooting um, and coming up with a training method, coming up with processes and procedures that make sense. Um, and they discovered a number of things. They discovered the right settings for the book eye scanner. They discovered um, the way that you need one person to man the scanner, one person to be checking on the actual quality of the scan and making the final crop. Um, they they really worked through a lot of technical processes mm -hmm. over the summer. Um, and clearly they, they figured out how to do it incredibly efficiently. Sure. Um, and Shay, I mean, I, I can't be grateful for Shay's participation enough um, because he knows these documents mm -hmm. forwards and backwards. Um, like the back of his hand, and he's uh, developed everything from training sheets for each step of the process to, um, I actually just got the opportunity to watch him on board to students this this semester um, and carefully go through the process with them, make sure they understand. Um, and he's always right there to answer questions. Right. Um, and so that's the thing, you know, we, we make sure that folks have the support they need mm -hmm. to do the best job that they can. Um, and right now, you know, we're not at the transcription phase yet. So a lot of it is about how do we get the best scan? How do right. we make sure that the the script that's on this page, uh, we make it as clear as possible in the scan so that when somebody has to reference this later, they can see it in the clearest way possible. Right. Um, and so, you know, we have, uh, like I said, that generational moment of some of our older volunteers learning a lot of new things about um, the sort of computer digital side of things. And we have some of our um, undergraduates learning to read figuring cursive. Figuring out how they can read <laughs> cursive and get, getting used to, to looking at it. Right. Um, uh, and so, you know, they, there's also this really wonderful uh you know, it's really wonderful to have those kinds of experiences happening in mm -hmm. the same space. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the press conference sure. where DAP was announced. It was on the Monday in which Juneteenth was recognized here in Lexington. And we were on the steps of the old courthouse. And Dr. Yvonne Giles was there, who I, one, did not know. And now I'm aggressively obsessed with. <laughs> Um, and she was telling us these stories about how she would go in and flip through these books. And she found five generations of her family. And that is so crazy. What experiences have you all had kind of similar to that? Have you had people find things and be like, oh, my gosh, like I had no idea that this was even around? Because for a while, and correct me if I'm wrong, for a while, people said that these records didn't even exist. And now... They do in abundance. So how is that playing out? Um, so often um, when it comes to the kind of repository that a place like a county clerk's office is, mm -hmm. um, you have to know exactly what you're asking for. Um, so it is true. If you go into the clerk's office today and say, I want to see the book of slave records, that doesn't exist. There's no one book that it somehow has every record of every mm -hmm. enslaved person in Fayette County. That's just not possible. Um, and it's not, like you were saying, you know, at the top, it's not actually readily apparent why a deed book would have anything to do mm -hmm. with enslaved people. Um, and so a lot, one barrier really to access is, is understanding why the kinds of documents 
that they have at the clerk's office would include enslaved people, especially if they're not the people named in the indexes because they're not exchanging property. They are property. They, yes. Um, uh, and a few notable exceptions where free people of color are buying and selling things. Um, but for the most part, the way that the index looks, the way that, you know, just the title of the type of record, for your average layperson, just, you know, it makes sense that, mm-hmm. that you just don't think that that's where that would be. Um, Dr. Giles is uh, a historian's historian, um, and she has done really amazing work um, preserving the African cemetery in town, doing work on African Americans and the horse industry, um, and getting down into the documents, yeah. searching line by line. Um, but not everybody has has the stamina, um, the the patience, the mm-hmm. meticulous nature for that. Um, and so one of one of the other barriers can be just kind of the barrier of physical space. You right. know, going down to a government office, having time you can block out to sit down and just flip through flip. book <laughs> after book after book. Um, it is true. I mean, legally, uh, the clerk must make available all of these documents freely to the public, and they've they've been there. Shay's been taking really good care of them, preserving them for a really long time, um, but. It does take a little bit of context. It takes a little bit of knowledge. It takes some. It takes the the you know the the ability to afford the time on a weekday during regular business hours to flip through. Um, and that's that's one thing that digitization can kind of mm-hmm. help bridge. Uh, is that well, if you don't have to be in a physical space and you can block out time somewhere, you know how how much more can you can you really access? Right, and. We said that the press conference took place on the steps of the courthouse. Mm -hmm. Tell us why that was so significant. So the courthouse that is uh, the old courthouse that is right in the center of downtown Lexington, um, it went up, I believe, in either the late 1870s or mid-1880s. So it was that particular building was built after slavery had ended. Um, but it was built on exactly the site of the previous courthouse um, that had been there before. Um, and on the steps of that previous court, previous courthouse were one of the most important slave markets in the Upper South. Um, after the Atlantic slave trade closed in 1808, um, so it was, at least on paper, illegal to import people directly from Africa, enslavers relied on enslaved people from other states uh, to man their cotton plantations in the Deep South. Um, And Kentucky was one of the most important suppliers of enslaved people to the cotton South, Um, beginning with, you know, walking coffles of people down through Tennessee into the Deep South. uh, And then when river navigation was more possible, um, selling people down the Ohio River to the Mississippi River. Um, And Kentucky became a really important center of the internal slave trade. And Lexington, um, even more so than Louisville, uh, was really an important center of commerce, trading, buying and selling enslaved people. Mm -hmm. Um, So Cheapside Market, uh, which is the marketplace that was right there on those steps, um, sort of infamous, um, infamous in the history of slavery in the United States. Um, and really one of the most important economic building blocks for the Commonwealth, um, the business of slavery generated 
an untold amount of wealth for the Commonwealth. Um, I often ask students uh, to think beyond just that property exchange and mm-hmm. to think about all of the things that commerce needs right, to make it run smoothly. Mm-hmm. So yes, slave traders are making money on the slave trade, but so are hotel owners, so are saloon owners, so are any of the building owners around that square who have a basement that can be used as a slave jail. Uh, so is the notary who has to you know, make out these deeds and stamp off on them. Um, so is the court system. So is the blacksmith who's making change for the couple. The, the money, if you follow the money, it expands out exponentially right. to make this work. Um, so when we decided to announce the project, um, we wanted to do it on the what is now becoming sort of a national day to celebrate emancipation, um, layered with the physical space of one of the most important slave markets in the United States. Uh, because a lot of the people whose names we see, overwhelmingly, they're enslaved people and they're people uh, who are being bought and sold. Um, or inherited, or rented out. Um, it's another very popular way in Kentucky for people to make money on slavery is to rent out enslaved people's labor and take their wages for themselves. Um, we wanted that layer in meaning, uh, and that really um, the weight of the space to be a part of the announcement. Um, because we're announcing making strides and understanding a system, but we're hopefully we're hopefully able to give names to people um, who many would have preferred to remain nameless. Right. If you had to explain this project or say what the most important part of this project is, what would you what would you say? It's the access piece of digital access project. Um, Accessibility in a a range of ways is super important, whether it's the accessibility we're going to provide by not making it a requirement that you physically go to a different space, or if it's the accessibility that we're able to provide by giving you high quality scans that you can zoom in on to try and figure out, is that a number eight? Is that a five? What is that number? Um, If it's the access that transcription will give folks who are visually impaired or blind and need to use a screen reader with that transcription, now they can Mm -hmm. also read these documents. Um, Whether it's the access of teaching folks who maybe don't really understand wills all that much. Um, it's certainly very complicated, it's complicated to me, and yes. I have to read them all the time, <laughs> um, right? And so there's a new piece of access that, yeah, it's about this will from the 1830s, but also it's helping folks understand contemporary estate planning, right? right. It's the access piece. Mm-hmm. Um, and as an African-American person myself, um, I I grew up like most Americans did, where slavery, I didn't really learn much about slavery in any in-depth way until I got to college. Um, and anytime I would ask questions about my own ancestors, even very well-meaning teachers would sort of shrug and say, well, you know, we just don't, we, there's no information. We just can't really know. It, it can't be known, you know. Uh, right. You know, oh, well, you might be able to trace your family, but the 1870 census, that's it. That's where it mm-hmm. ends because before then, they don't have names in these documents. Um the access is also about access to the to the possibility of knowing one's own past. Um, really, 
moving past, you know, family story and family legend to, yes. to being able to see the the record um, of where you come from. Um, you know, I think sometimes when folks hear that I study slavery, they think studying slavery like forecloses possibilities, right? Cuts off possibility. Um, but again, I, I study slave resistance, so a lot of what I what I lean into um, are the many possibilities. If I if I spend too much time thinking about well, what was probable, um, you know, I only get one or two basic answers. When I really dig into the documents and look at what was possible, um, it opens up a, a whole new um, sense of belonging, inclusion, um, and um, really a sense of of one's own self to right. be able to do that. How can people get more involved with DAP? And what immediate needs do you need filled right now that maybe members of the community can do? So we, um, right now, we're full up on volunteers um, for the current semester. Um, we will be looking into expanding the volunteer base next semester and then over the summer. So the best way for you to let us know that you are interested in being involved in the project is to reach out to Shay Brown at the Fayette County Clerk's Office. Um, and he's most easily reach reachable through the project's email address. Um, and that's fccprojects at Fayette County Clerk, that's all one word, dot com. Um, so that's F as in Falcon, C as in cake, C as in cake, projects at Fayette County Clerk, all one word, dot com. Um, and we'll basically then add you to an information list so that when we do have a new call for volunteers or we are looking for more folks to be involved, um, we know to contact you. Um, and really, the the ways that community can be involved are, are pretty diverse. Um, so there are folks we're going to need to do the labor of scanning the images, of eventually transcribing the documents. but. We're also opening up to community programming. Um, and so if you want to be kept in the loop about when we're holding an event, um, when we're going to be talking about specific parts of the project publicly, uh, that's also a really great way to make sure you're on that list and you're kept up to date. And fun fact for you, that Shay Brown is a character. If you just want to like go in and just talk to him, he is so cool. <laughs> he is so nice. When he spoke at the press conference, I mean, I don't think there was a dry eye in the house. He really tore it down. Yeah, I mean, you're going to get me in trouble sending sending everybody to go visit <laughs> Go Shea, hang out but, with Shay. But the truth is, <laughs> the county clerk's office is a government office. If it, It's free it's and like open to busy the public. Or yeah. <laughs> it's free and open to the public. There's a really, beyond Shay, there's a really lovely staff that's there to help you. Um, and you, you are, in fact, entitled to go look at the physical documents if you want to. So um, definitely would encourage that, too. Hey, we are going into our BGCF Fast Facts, which is where I ask you a series of questions, and without thinking about it too hard, you're going to give me the first thing that comes to mind. I mean, you've been talking to me for a little while, so you know concise answers aren't my strong suit. <laughs> I'm so, so excited. Okay, I'm just going to I'm going to just let it fly. Okay. <laughs> what are you reading right now? So right now, I'm reading A Black Woman's History of the United States because I'm assigning pieces of it to my class on Slave Rebellion. 
What are you watching right now? Ooh, um, I am re-watching A League of Their Own on Amazon Prime. <gasps> okay, I'm scared to get into it because I liked the movie. Am I going to be bummed out if I watch the show? Um, it is really wonderful. Okay. Um, you need limited baseball knowledge to understand it. That's great news. And they actually illuminate both LGBTQ stories in the era and African-American women in baseball. So in the original movie, you got like 10 seconds of a black woman picking up a baseball. You got zero. Yeah. Right. Uh, <laughs> and in this version, you actually follow a whole storyline. That's fantastic. Um, and there actually were f- at least four black women who played in the Negro Leagues. Um, and so... It's not a far-fetched fantasy. This is actually taken from actual women's lives. So very enjoyable. Amazon Prime. See, I told you, concise answer is not my thing. I love it. What are you eating right now? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, Homemade uh, orzo spinach and chicken meatball soup. Delish. Yeah, I'm trying to lean into soup season, even though it's still 80 degrees. Listen, it's here. It's still 80 degrees, but I'm I'm leaning into it. It's 80 degrees outside. It is 40 in my heart. So what are you listening to right now? Ooh, I'm listening to um, Beyonce, Beyonce Knowles Carter um, and her latest album. You must. On repeat. You must. What are you most scared of? Um, I am most scared of letting the ancestors down. Uh, I'm a firm believer that you can't play in the ancestors' faces. So uh, I grew up in the church, uh, and so I was raised to believe that you kind of grow where you're planted. And mm-hmm. so if the place that I'm planted is here and the ancestors are saying, come digitize our records, if I mess it up, that's that's yeah. something I'm afraid of. Yeah. Well, so far you're doing a great job. I'm, if I'm, I do I'm trying. Myself. I'm trying. I hope they see <laughs> that I'm trying. What are you most proud of? I am most proud right now of my book, Surviving Southampton. Mm -hmm. It took me a decade uh, from research to finish, and I'm very, very proud of it. Um, Just won the James Broussard First Book Award from the Society for uh, American Historians of the Early Republic. Um, So I am very proud of that. Are you celebrating that? Nonstop, yes. For sure. It's a constant celebration. Good for you. Who do you look up to? Um, I look up to both of my grandmothers. Um, what are their names? Uh, Betty is my father's mom, and Amelia is my mother's mom. Um, they both passed on, um, but they were both survivors in their own way, mm-hmm. and so their perseverance is something that I, I think about all the time. Mm-hmm. What are you most looking forward to? I am most looking forward to, like, a renewal of travel post-pandemic. Yeah. I got to do a little travel this summer and realized how much I missed it, and I'm just, like, really excited to plot out my next adventure. Yeah. Yeah. We were just talking, my younger brother is leaving for a two-month European excursion, just backpacking. And I'm so jealous and also so scared. I mean, to be clear, I'm definitely on, like, my rich auntie travel vibe. Oh, um, yes. At this moment. Yes. You know, like, gone are my hostel backpacking days. Yes. Like, I am, like, book me a hotel in Lisbon and, yeah. For sure. Yeah. That's the only way I'm going. Mm-hmm. I can't live out of a backpack. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Why do you love our community? 
For me, Lexington, um, like I said, feels a lot like uh, Virginia. Um, and I'm not a Virginian. I'm not a Kentuckian. Um, but from the beautiful scenery of our state to really the the number of folks who have a level of respect and pride in history, um, it's something that I, I really cherish, you know, getting to work with folks who've been in this for a minute, um, who really want to make sure their histories are preserved. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that there are some folks like that just about everywhere, but there's something a little bit different about the Upper South. Um, and so I just feel really privileged to get to be a part of telling these stories. As an outsider, I feel mm-hmm. really privileged. Why do you love yourself? I love that I am a communicator um, and a community builder um, and a bridge builder. Um, like I said, historians are typically a pretty solitary bunch. <laughs> um, and I, I have my, my introvert moments. Mm-hmm. Um You have to in this line of work. Um, But I am never more energized than when I am able to present a story people thought it was impossible to know. Um, And so making those connections with people. um, I used to joke, you know, I mostly spend time with dead people because (laughs) I I study the 1830s, so nobody I know is alive. Um, but in this new phase of my career, I'm spending a lot more time with li- alive people. That's exciting. Um, and uh, at first I was like, I don't know about this. The dead people were really easy uh, to deal with. Um, but but I will say um, being a connector is something I'm really proud of. Last question. If people wanted to learn more about Digital Access Project, if people wanted to learn and hear more from you, where can they stay in touch? Um, Well, you can always find me um, at my website through UK. Uh, You just search Vanessa Holden UKY um, and I'll pop up as will my work, uh, my writing. Um, And then just keep an ear out uh, because the Digital Access Project will have additional upcoming events. Um, The Digital Access Project will have additional calls for uh, volunteers and for help. Um, And we're really looking forward to bringing as many people in as possible. One more thing before we go. Give your book another shout out. Sure. Um, My book is called Surviving Southampton, African-American Women and Resistance in Nat Turner's Community. And it chronicles the role that Black women and children played in America's most famous slave rebellion. I like to say that if men were the infantry and cavalry of this revolt, Black women and children were the supply line in the intelligence network. Mm. And if you know anything about military operations, you cannot have a successful one without a good supply line and an intelligence network. Um, I also focus a lot on survival. So mm-hmm. what happened after um, and how did Southampton County keep going after the fact? Um, so you can find it wherever fine books are sold. Um, so that's uh, Surviving Southampton, African-American Women and Resistance in Nat Turner's Community. Vanessa, thank you so much for being here. This has been such a joy and such a delight. I'm so glad that we got to hang out. Yeah, I'm so happy we got to do this. This yes. is really great. Yeah, we'll have to do it again. Yes, yeah, anytime. Yeah, happy to come back. Yeah, Amazing. we'll we'll pull Shay in here. And Shay in here next time. You know, he's we always, will get Shay on this mic. He's a, yeah, he's always and it got, will get crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's got even more facts to to tell you. So yeah. Amazing. Thank you so much. I'll see you next time. Okay, great. Sounds good. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Do Good Radio Hour, brought to you by Bluegrass Community Foundation.
We'll be back next week right here on Radio Lex, or you can listen to us anytime on Apple Podcasts. In the meantime, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at BGCFKY, or visit us on our website at BGCF.org to stay updated on all of the latest giving and do good opportunities in our community. Until next time, I'm Courtney Turner. Do good and be well. You are listening to the Do Good Radio Hour on Radio Lex, WLXU 93.9 LPFM Lexington. Our theme song is Happy Tune, written and performed by Brother Smith. The views expressed on this podcast are not necessarily the views of Radio Lex, its board of directors, or Bluegrass Community Foundation. The views expressed are solely my own and the guests'.